PM board bombs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where board studying continues to be enjoyable. My name is Blake Briggs and I'm joined by the usual criminal, Travis Smith, comma MD. Comma DO. <laughs> I know, I was going to see if you remembered that. <laughs> Thanks for having me, sir. For each 15 to 20 minute episode, you gain high yield board knowledge. As we like to say, come for the stems and stay for the content. We have the awesome EM Rapid Boards. You can go to emrapidboards.com supercast.tech and you can also find us on twitter and instagram at em board bombs and we have a really special episode today travis why don't you introduce our guest uh, we're honored to have him on and we're gonna really delve into a complaint that you thought you heard the last of a few months ago but it's uh, it's like the empire strikes back it's coming back with a vengeance so travis yeah well ahead. thank you for having me on again and i have been stalking uh, peter johns on youtube and on twitter <laughs> of, of, aggressively, aggressively of late uh, just trying to pick his brain on vertigo. So Peter Johns, he's a practicing emergency medicine physician, academic faculty at the University of Ottawa, Department of Emergency Medicine. He completed his medical school at the University of Ottawa and his residency at the University of Toronto. He is the the expert on vertigo complaints, specifically the HINTS exam. And we're elated that there is someone out there trying to make sense of all this stuff. Peter Johns' YouTube <laughs> channel is very popular. It has tens of thousands of subscribers with millions of views. All are unique, have incredible clinical videos on the HINTS exam and vertigo conditions. We're going to uh, link this in the show notes so you guys can all go check out the videos. But we are happy to have you, Peter. We would be honored if you would join us. Well, very glad to be here, Blake and Travis. Looking forward to uh, talking about my favorite topic. Well, thank you again for joining us. I know Travis has been in, in touch with you. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you. I've, been, uh, I've enjoyed your YouTube videos I've been watching. Thanks. I enjoy making them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're super helpful. And, and I think Very helpful. You know, ex- explaining it, I, I w- was going over it with some of my students yesterday, and they're like, well, I've, I've heard about it, but you know, I don't really get it. And then we watched a couple of your videos, and I mean, you know, just seeing the eye movements and being able to you know, put language and a description with seeing it, I think, makes everything. I remember I gave a lecture on vertigo in my last year residency, and I look back on that uh, lecture now, and I'm like, oh my gosh! I mean, just the stuff that I thought <laughs> I knew, I thought I, I thought I nailed it. Well, that that's what happened to me 30 years ago. I was teaching what was in the textbooks, and uh, it's only when I started seeing patients and realizing what was really happening that I, I realized the first few lectures I gave, you, you couldn't diagnose anything based on what I taught people. So we, we are going to explore, because I feel like you know these vertigo patients, as we've discussed prior, they all seem to sit unattended to by a physician because no one wants to pick them up, especially <laughs> the 70-year-old that says they're dizzy. Uh, so usually we do send the medical student or or the intern in first and uh, see what they can find. But, you know, I find that ED docs don't seem to like vertigo and don't want to spend much time on learning it. One, because it's confusing. But why is that? And, and what are the implications of that? Well, I think it all stems from the fact that you could see someone who's dizzy and has nystagmus and they just have vestibular neuritis. You send them home and they do fine. And then you can see somebody who also has dizziness and nystagmus, and you send them home, and then you find out a day or two later that they came back in a really bad state, in a coma, or they even died. 
So that's frightening. That's scary. That should worry us. Uh, but you know that what that leads to is that when you when you are afraid of something, um, you you aren't necessarily going to pick up those charts, like you say. And if you don't think about it, you don't learn about it, and it becomes like a vicious cycle of dislike, fear and not exposing yourself to it. And next thing you know, you, you become the vertigo adverse. And, and that's not good for your patients, not good for you, because you're going to have to see them. Yeah, I feel like the vertigo world on looking at nystagmus and even understanding nystagmus has been one of those you know, mythological creatures. I mean, you can read about it in a book, but unless you have a video, and, and thank God that you know, YouTube exists for your ability to show this stuff. I mean, it's just one of those things that you read about and like, I don't really know what that would look like if it hit me in the face. So I, I, what, what gave you that idea to go and, and say, hey, I'm gonna start doing this? Well, I think one of the things is that um, when I started actually figuring out how to diagnose BPBV and how to cure it, I, I, you know, I noticed that they had vertical nystagmus often, vertical upward with a rotary component towards the downward ear. And even in, in the, the textbooks of that I was studying at the time in the 90s would say that it was horizontal or rotatory. And they wouldn't talk about the vertical aspect. Because there was no YouTube, I would take my own videos and I'd show people, hey, look at this uh, positive Dix Hall Pike. And they'd go vertical nystagmus. Oh, that's central. You better get a CT scan, which is wrong. It's it, the positive Dix Hall Pike is vertical upward with a rotatory component towards the downward ear. And so I became kind of... Um, interested in getting that word out now i i also had children were were young at the time and and uh, you had to buy a big cam a big you know video camera when you had kids you didn't have little iphones you had these giant cameras so i started using uh videos of my kids i'd start i actually took it to work and started videoing people at work then when youtube came out my brother showed me youtube uh, like a year after it was on the internet and i thought well that, i could put videos on that and so i started doing that and People started to like them, and I started uh, getting a lot of good feedback, and I started to realize it's a really good place to teach people. Well, I, I think that makes us all feel better, knowing that you know maybe it took you uh, a little over 10 years to understand this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm still learning every day. Good. Every every time I read or, or look at something, I feel like I'm learning it, you know, differently or, or learning something new. But uh, we we also find that you know you don't seem to be a big fan of the table of characteristics of central versus peripheral vertigo, which I think you know we were all taught. Hey, just branch it. We have vertigo, central, peripheral. Make it simple. Just go down these two algorithms. Why is that? Well, the reason why those are doomed for failure, and I tried to make them work when I when I saw them a recent textbook, well, a few years ago, I said maybe I can see how this one's not working. Maybe I can make it work, and I I couldn't. And I realized hmm. why the reason that it doesn't work is because on the peripheral side, you've got BPBV and vestibular neuritis, which if you're going to show what common characteristics they have, they should be very similar. But they have different nystagmus, they have different onset, they have different length of time, so they're quite clinically different BPBV and vestibular neuritis. And once you learn what they actually look like, you shouldn't confuse the two. And then on the other side, you've got uh, on the central side, the one that everybody's worried about, like I said, is, is posterior circulation stroke. And those patients can actually present very similar to vestibular neuritis. And sometimes they don't have any of the neurologic features which you, you want to look for. And we call that pseudo-vestibular neuritis, where they look just like vestibular neuritis. And those are the patients where hints will be helpful. But Putting them on either side of a table is not helpful because the nystagmus can be the same, the duration can be the same, many things can be the same. So you just can't make a central versus peripheral table that makes a lot of sense. The only thing that usually is on that table at the bottom is 
with central, you usually have neurologic symptoms, other neurologic findings, and in peripheral, you shouldn't. Now, that's true, but everything else on that column, I can just argue with. It's just not helpful way of approaching it from my point of view. Like we talked about in the last Vertigo episode, the deadly Ds. <laughs> Look out for those. So what is a better approach? For whether the patient is having short episodes, which could be a TIA or, or BPV, or whether they're having long episodes, which could be vestibular neuritis or a stroke, First thing you have to do is look for those features that would make them inconsistent with BPPV or vestibular neuritis. If they have a new significant severe headache or, or neck pain, that's not BPPV, that's not uh, vestibular neuritis. You could be worried about a, a cerebellar um, hemorrhage or vertebral artery dissection in those situations. And the next thing is, uh, can they walk? Can they stand? People with BPPV and vestibular neuritis, they'll, they'll, they might have some trouble, especially vestibular neuritis, but they should be able to walk. And if they can't walk, you're worried about central. And then, of course, the usual stroke symptoms. Sometimes people with posterior circulation strokes will have uh, tingling or weakness in their face, arm, or leg, or the, uh, they'll have visual difficulties. And they also have the posterior circulation symptoms like you're talking about, the, the sometimes called the dangerous Ds, the deadly Ds. I just call them the Ds because I don't want to call them the deadly Ds in front of the patients. <laughs> Let's ask if they have any deadly Ds. What? I have a deadly D. So th those are things like diplopia, dysarthria, dysmetria, dysphagia, dysphonia. If they have any of those, that's not consistent with vestibular neuritis. It's not consistent with BPPV. The, and the last thing is, what does their nystagmus look like? Are they having vertical upward or downward nystagmus? Not during the Dix-Hallpike test, which I mentioned earlier, you do see vertical nystagmus during a positive Dix-Hallpike test. But if it's spontaneous, if they're just sitting in front of you and or you have them look up and you're seeing vertical upward nystagmus, that is a central cause for their uh, vertigo. So if you screen for those central features initially, you'll pick up a lot of dangerous things. And then what you do is you, you say, okay, now how long did their episode of dizziness last for? If it lasts for a very short time, typically 20, 30 seconds, but sometimes people will say with BPBV it lasted 10 minutes because they were nauseated and sweaty afterwards. But if it lasts for a short time and you, you examine them and they have none of, those, none of those neurologic features and you examine them for nystagmus and you don't see any spontaneous nystagmus or you ask them look off to the left and look off to the right and you don't see any gaze-evoked nystagmus, that's called, then those are the people that you can do a Dix-Hallpike test and see if they have BPBV. And then you should see the characteristic. I made a video recently of just because you put them down a Dix-Hallpike position and you see nystagmus doesn't mean they necessarily have BPBV. They could have it, mm -hmm. but they could have a, a variant of BPBV, such as uh, horizontal canal BPBV, or you, they could have a, a, an improving vestibular neuritis, which is just getting worse with your Dix-Hallpike. So you have to see the characteristic nystagmus, and that's where I think my videos are helpful. Again, posterior canal is going to be vertical upward, rotatory towards the downward ear, and horizontal canal, you'll actually see horizontal nystagmus beating to the um, downward or upward ear. If you see somebody who sounds just like BPBV and you do a Dix-Hallpike test and either they have no nystagmus or vertigo on either side or you see horizontal nystagmus during the Dix-Hallpike test, that means they could have horizontal canal BPBV. So you do a different test called the supine roll test. And that's actually really easy to do. You just lie them supine and then turn their head 90 degrees off to the side and you look for horizontal nystagmus. It's, it's a bit of a, if you've never diagnosed posterior canal BPBV, you'll find horizontal canal that will just kind of blow your mind. But <laughs> but if you have diagnosed and treated and you've learned how to treat uh, posterior canal BPB, regular BPBV, 
you're you're going to see um, horizontal canal BPBV because it's probably a third of the cases that we see in the emergency department are actually horizontal canal BPBV. I actually gave a, a, a lecture in uh, Glasgow and I said to people, how many people have uh, diagnosed horizontal canal BPBV? And like five people put up their hand out of 200. Then I showed the horizontal nystagmus in a supine roll test. I said, now how many people do you think have seen it? And like half the people put their hand up. So hmm. it's clearly under-recognized. We, we really don't recognize it. Now, secondly, the second part of your question about what else should we do for these patients, if they're having the long episodes, hours or days of constant vertigo, and you do see nystagmus while they're looking straight ahead or off to the side, then that's, that's the acute vestibular syndrome. Let, let, me, let me ask you this, and, and this is one thing, when I think we all have patients that come in and, you know, I would love them to fit in, in boxes, but they say, hey, I have a little bit of a headache or I'm always feeling dizzy. And then you kind of hammer it down. It's like, hey, do you really feel dizzy or vertiginous or do you feel like unwell? You know, I, I find that trying to get that out of the patient, you know, they come in and they, hey, for the last day, I've not felt well, I felt dizzy, but not necessarily vertiginous. And then you look for either gaze evoke nystagmus or spontaneous nystagmus and you're not seeing that in them. Is that where you kind of dive more into the history to see, hey, is this person really continuously vertiginous or did they have a brief episode? How, how do you, you know, go in and, and manage those kind of gray areas? That one you just described, I'll tell you right now, the most, if they've, the th- thing you should ask them is, have you had other episodes of dizziness in the past? Hmm. And how many have you had? And if they've had five or more episodes of dizziness in the past, the most likely thing that's doing this is vestibular migraine. I just saw one last night, older hmm. woman, comes in, I've been dizzy since yesterday. I'm having trouble walking. Nothing else that sounds, uh, I don't see any nystagmus, none of the Ds, nothing. I look in her chart. She's had two CT scans of her head in the past for dizziness, headaches. She's seen neurologists. She's seen ENT. They were all normal, she, the head CTs? Yeah, they were all normal. <laughs> they were all normal. And, Surprise. And then, uh, oh, yeah, and, and then she, how many migraines have you had in your life? Oh, 20. <laughs> okay, how many, time, how many dizzy episodes have you had in your life? About 200. And then in those dizzy episodes, do you sometimes get uh, the migraine headache with it? Or do you sometimes get blurry vision or you get lights bothering? That's the most common symptom that you get with vestibular migraine is photophobia. And she goes, oh, yeah, I usually get that. Well, that's that's vestibular migraine. And that can be diagnosed clinically without any CT scans or MRIs, assuming that, again, you've got a long series of episodes over a period of time with wellness in between and a history of migraines and the migraines feature associated with with some of them. Not all of them. That's the other thing is that they can have two days of dizziness without any nystagmus, without any headache. And some of their episodes can be completely isolated vertigo. So we miss a lot of those too. We, it's funny, we're talking about the most common missed diagnoses first. Horizontal canal, BPPV, and vestibular migraine. That's good. You should be in your in your diagnostic box because if you can diagnose those, Disney is not yet diagnosed or not otherwise specified will decrease significantly. Now, in terms of physical exam features, uh, I know you're mentioning the Dick's Hall Pike. I work with residents at, at my institution. I know Travis has medical students. How do you think in terms of moving toward which Dick's Hall Pike maneuver to do first would be an easy thing to tell residents. You know, when I'm trying to teach which canal is effective, that sort of thing, I know we already mentioned the horizontal canal, but what's a good, easy way at the bedside to say, you know what, I need to do left or right approach. Is there an easy way to remember that? Yeah, I would say first thing, I would be in the room when your learners are doing it. Of course. Yeah. And make sure that yeah. they're, yeah, because I've been, I've been uh, yeah. burned by that where they say they're seeing something or doing something and then they, then you go into the patient doesn't want to do it again or, or you, right. you, it doesn't, you don't see it, what they said they saw. So right. I always try and be in the room. I tell them when I start the shift, 
no dicks hall piking or hints without me in the room right and so anyway so if the patient says that usually <laughs> if they have bpbv if they have poster canal which is the most common type it's probably about 60 70 percent they'll notice that one way when they turn their head in bed will get dizzy and mm -hmm. the other way not so then i i'll do a dicks hall pike test testing the side that doesn't make them dizzy and if it doesn't make them dizzy and they don't get any nystagmus, then I'll sit them up. And usually if they have BPBV, when you sit them up, they'll go, whoa, I got a little dizzy there going up. But then they say, okay, just wait. It, it, and, it, and it just lasts a few seconds. They go, now we'll do the other side. And then you put them down and there's a latency where nothing happens for like two, three seconds, up to 15, sometimes 30 seconds. But usually it's like one, two, three, then they go, whoa, oh, I'm getting it now, I'm dizzy. And then you start to see a crescendo, decrescendo pattern mm -hmm. of, of, uh, of nystagmus. So that's what I do. Now, if, if I see that pattern, I'll go straight in, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll straight into the epic maneuver. I will leave them there for a minute or so, or, or as long as they're dizzy for plus another 30 seconds, then I'll turn them to the opposite Dick's Hall Pike side at the same length of time. And then I'll turn them, keep turning the same direction and then uh, leave them there for that length of time and then sit them up. If they, as you say, if they, you know, if you do the Dick's Hall Pike test and it's negative or you're seeing horizontal nystagmus, that's when you do the supine roll test. And if you're really convinced that they have BPBV and it's all been negative so far, I will sit them up and I will do the Dick's Hall Pike again on both sides and I'll do it kind of a little crisper, a little bit faster going down. Uh, that's all negative and it just sounded like BPBV. It, the most common diagnosis is that they had BPBV and it got cured spontaneously. Horizontal canal can cure itself very quickly. Even posterior canal will eventually cure itself. So um, that, that's a, a real diagnosis as well. Yeah, I feel like we've we've all had that patient where it sounds like it, smells like it, and then you do the test and it's normal. But like you said, it probably already self-resolved on its own. And I, I think you just offered that anytime I go into a room to do a Dick's Hall Pike, I can Skype you. Is that what you just said? <laughs> feel free. I'd love to hear from you, Travis. <laughs> Deal. So speaking of more physical exam findings, how possible is it for emergency doctor to use the hints exam in a proper way, you hear all these mixed things back and forth. So can you dispel all the myths and just tell us the real deal on his exam? I think the real deal is for sure we can teach it and mm -hmm. we can learn it. It's not like there's some, some kind of magic uh, hands that neurotologists have that they can turn the head 20 degrees to the midline and we can't do that. <laughs> I think we're, we're pretty accomplished at doing procedures. You know, we're, we're putting in central lines and cracking chests and, and we can't turn a head 20 degrees quickly. No, I think we can, of course. But like anything else, if you do it on the wrong patient, the wrong way, interpret the wrong way, it's a bad test. You, you're not, you're going to get bad results. So it is something that's completely different than what we've been taught in the past. And so we need, we need a, a structured um, a way of learning it. You need to gain the information of what it is, when to use it, how to use it, how to interpret it. You need to have someone help you with it. I think the, ideally before COVID times, you know, I would go and give workshops on how to do this. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so you, you, it's a learned technique. When people say that it hasn't been shown to be tested in physicians, it's not quite true. There was an Italian study where he did almost hints. He did uh, the head impulse test, but instead of test the skew, he did uh, like his ability to stand. And it was called Standing. It was by Vanny, and it was published, I think, in 2017. And he did show that with with uh, training, emergency physicians could accurately use the, the head impulse test. So can it be done? Of course it can be done. Can you just watch one video and then just go and start using it in clinical practice? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. I, I think if you have to use the HINTS acronym or the infarct mnemonic to remember how to interpret it, 
you're not ready to use it clinically. Mm-hmm. You have to understand it well enough that, that you could teach it to someone else. Preferably, you can have someone else look at your technique and make sure you're doing it the way you're supposed to be doing it. The other thing is, even if you're not sure about what you're, what you're doing, if you do the head and pulse test on somebody who you were planning on sending home with vestibular neuritis, like I don't think you don't MRI everybody with vestibular neuritis, do you or do you? No. I, I hope not. Well, I mean, I, f- I feel like I this, is, this is the, this is the, the you know the way that we can really cut that down. And I know there's well, exactly. You know, so, some people That's... just don't trust themselves. I mean, even sure. I mean, tons of complaints. You know, headaches. You know, vertigo. I mean, you know, we all see it. You know, head CT, head CT. You know, and uh, I know the radiology colleagues too feel the same way because they're always like, "Man, you guys CT every person that has a headache and vertigo." And I was like, "I hope not," but yeah. you know, they they I see that on their too. end. Well, I, I see it too. I've seen lots of followed up my colleagues who've done a CT angiogram on somebody with BPBV because they didn't know what they were seeing. But in any case, getting back to the head impulse test. So the great advantage of the hints, uh, because vestibular neuritis is so much more common than seeing someone with a posterior circulation stroke that has nothing but nystagmus and dizziness and, and, and doesn't have any of the other central features I talked about, you're going to use the hints to see the abnormal head impulse test in vestibular neuritis and say, hey, that's clearly vestibular neuritis you go home and you're going to feel confident about it and you're going to learn what an abnormal head impulse test looks like. So when, if you do see the, the occasional patient, the rare, I'm not even sure if I've actually seen one where who didn't have anything that sounded central at all. And then you do a normal head impulse test. You'll say, Hey, I'm not seeing a, an abnormal head impulse test. I think I need to consult neurology or do whatever you get an MRI. That's, that's fine. But you should be able to do to look for that little abnormal uh, head impulse test and send them home because that's it's not that hard to do. All the people I've talked to who are the non-adopters and kind of campaign against hints, you can tell they don't understand it. Sure, they're they're afraid of things that they don't understand. I, there's a lot of things I don't understand in medicine. It, it scares the bejesus out of me. But that doesn't mean uh, I I don't think other people should be learning about it. We all have our little um, blind spots, and some sometimes vertigo is a blind spot for a lot of people because they don't want to spend time learning about it. Yeah, and I think what you mentioned there is is base rate. And if you talk about you know patients that come into the emergency department with vertigo, I think it's probably around three percent. But then if you take a you know that subset of patients who actually have a you know a stroke, it's probably you know zero point five percent according to some of the, the the data that you see. But then if you're taking the patients who have a central cause of vertigo versus vestibular neuritis, you're going to be seeing way more patients with one vestibular migraine and two with vestibular neuritis. And it's, you know, upon us to say, hey, we're looking at all these patients that are coming in with constant symptoms, vertigo and some nystagmus to kind of pull those patients out and say, hey, you're safe to go home. This is peripheral versus not. So I think if you think base rate, central causes are less common, like stroke, than the vestibular neuritis, then I think it makes it a little bit easier for us to, you know, to, to swallow. Because I really think that everyone's like, hey, I'm going to miss this because it's more common when really it isn't. Yeah, that, I agree with those points. The only confusing thing about it, is, of course, is that vestibular migraine is, in fact, the central cause of vertigo. And we miss it all the time and nobody dies of it. But what happens is we don't diagnose a lot of people. I've seen many people, like I say, who, who've had multiple CT scans and visits and nobody knows what's wrong with them. Then they go to a dizzy clinic, uh, like a tertiary care dizzy clinic where people know about vestibular migraine and they and they get diagnosed. One of the things I'm actually thinking about is rather than talk about central versus peripheral, we should talk about dangerous versus benign causes. Because although people suffer from all the benign causes, nobody dies of BPBV or vestibular neuritis or even vestibular migraine, while the dangerous causes like stroke and 
few other things obviously can be much more deadly. Is that one of the reasons? I mean, you don't seem to be a big proponent of learning all of the vestibular syndromes. You know, is that one of the reasons or, or I guess what's your take on that? Well, my take on that is that people are, are not very interested in learning a lot about vertigo. And to talk about spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome versus triggered uh, episodic vestibular syndrome is just an extra layer of complexity, which doesn't really help you. You want to make a diagnosis uh, so that you can rule out a dangerous cause. That's how you basically rule out a dangerous cause is reliably making a diagnosis of a non-dangerous cause, like like BPBV, like vestibular neuritis, like vestibular migraine. In fact, vestibular migraine can, can look like triggered episodic vestibular syndrome because it's worse when they move their head and worse when they get up. It can last for two days, so it looks like episodic uh, acute vestibular syndrome, and then it can look like spun. So it's just not that great a, um, a system. If you're a frontline provider like we are, and you're not, you just want to become vertigo competent, then I don't think adding those syndromes will do anything but confuse you more. Now, you got to be careful. If somebody comes in with a headache and a dizzy episode, and they don't have any stigmas, they're having trouble walking, and they don't have, they've never had episodes before. They don't have migraines. Well, those people, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about those people, right? It's, that's why it's five or more episodes, because you don't usually get, it's very unusual to get multiple TIAs, and especially over an extended period of time. Uh, actually, uh, that brings up another point, is that what about the patients who don't have nystagmus but are having trouble walking? There's mm-hmm. a study um, out of, of, of Germany recently by Mochner who showed that if you present with dizziness and difficulty walking, but you don't have nystagmus, if you do a delayed MRI on these people, a third of them will have an uh, acute brain lesion, most of them stroke. And if you have an ABCD2 score of four or more, half of them will have something on their MRI. So you, if somebody comes in and says, I'm having trouble walking, I feel dizzy, you don't see nystagmus, that's not vestibular neuritis, mm. that's something else. And if they've never had it before, um, uh, then I'm, I'm worried about these people. Having difficulty walking, no nystagmus. That's not vestibular neuritis, so doing a hint on them is pointless. Not BPVV if they say, I'm, I'm very dizzy now and they're having trouble walking around. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Don't do hints plus on somebody if they don't have nystagmus. Yeah, we didn't talk about uh, the plus part of hints plus, so maybe I'll just briefly uh, go over that is the reason why uh, at bedside test of hearing was added to hints that's what hints plus is mm-hmm. is to pick up the ica stroke because if you have an anterior inferior cerebellar artery stroke you will infarct your organs of balance and hearing so you will lose your hearing and lose your sense of balance as part of a stroke syndrome so so if an older person especially say an older person uh, comes in and they say I, I'm dizzy and I'm vomiting and I can't hear out of this ear or you test their hearing and they go, I don't hear anything out of that ear and that's a new finding for them. I'd be worried about an ICA stroke. It would definitely work them up. Now, if somebody's a young person and they say, I've had a cold and my ear feels kind of blocked and now it's hurting and now I'm getting dizziness and decreased hearing, uh, that's probably labyrinthitis. When somebody has what looks like vestibular neuritis, but they have hearing loss or tinnitus, we call that labyrinthitis. Now, everybody in between, nobody's exactly sure what to do uh, with with them. But if they have, certainly have, if they're older, they have risk factors, and they have sudden loss of hearing unexplained, I would definitely work them up for an ICA stroke. And that's the hints plus, just seeing if they can hear by just rubbing your fingers beside either ear and seeing if they can hear it. Now, when it comes to imaging, as we kind of wrap things up, one thing I was actually shocked early in my career when I was a resident, I was shocked to learn about how worthless CT is. That was truly shocking. I'm more shocked that people don't know that. It's incredible that the amount of emergency physicians I see on a daily basis order a CT 
and then they feel good about themselves when it's negative and they send the patient home every day. I see it almost every day uh, throughout the United States, not just at where my shop. Yep, same. Yeah, it's just incredible. And I'm sure you do too, Peter. But where does advanced imaging play into this and when you feel good about things? Well, the uh, first thing is that if they, if you're worried about a cerebral hemorrhage because they have severe new headache and they're having vertigo and sure, nystagmus, sure. that's the CT's, you know, that's, right, that's fair right. game. Of course, but, for bleeding. Yeah. Uh, just having a little bit of a headache or I'm having a migraine with my headache, That's that doesn't count. Of course. Uh, so that's that's the advantage of a CT, plain CT. If they're having, uh, also, if they're having neck pain or, or, or headache, a CTA could pick up a vertebral artery dissection. Unless I'm mistaken, those are not common causes at all of these. Of these. Those are Pretty exceptions than the, the rule. Yeah. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. Okay. Right. I don't. I don't order many CTs on right. on people as heads for sure. For sure. Um, the the people who do have a significant uh, neurologic findings like dysarthria or or diplopia, um, those people would you know benefit from an MRI. But even an MRI can miss ten or twenty percent of smaller cerebellar strokes in the first tw- in the first twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. It's only after about seventy two hours where it becomes much more reliable. So even MRI is not perfect. That's a similar you know, mind-blowing stat to people too. Like what? MRI misses (laughs) strokes in the first 48 hours? And I think, Peter, you were were having a discussion on Twitter with somebody about that as well. Like, oh, you know, I'm just going to MRI. And you're like, well, MRI misses, you know, 20% or so at at 48 hours. And it was kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, that's, hints is is to pick up those people who have uh, no abnormal findings, but have abnormal hints. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you. And we have gone through this. We did our other podcast on vertigo. And I think just following up with this and discussing hints exam, I think is going to make all of us a little bit more comfortable with doing it. We're going to link the videos, your YouTube channel to all this. I recommend everybody go and, and watch them over and over again a couple times. And you will be a master clinician, just like uh, Dr. Peter Johns. And, and thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure, guys. And uh, if your listeners have any questions, you can email me at uh, peterjohns84 at gmail.com. I answer questions all the time that, that from all across the world and happy to uh, help people out to understand vertigo. Awesome. Or just stalk them on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, you can catch our podcast on Twitter and Instagram at EM Board Bombs. We have the EM Rapid Bombs podcast, which is our subscriber-based interactive question bank podcast. Uh, it's the first of its kind in the world. There's nothing else like it. So check that out as well. And uh, Peter, thanks again. I thought the most reasonable thing, which makes me feel better, is not trying to learn all these neat little categories of vestibular syndromes. And I'm definitely going to be taking some of the things that uh, you talked today, and I'm going to keep rewatching your videos. So thanks again for coming on. It was my great pleasure, guys. You stay warm up there. I know it's still snowing up in Canada.